Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today we're going to be talking about one of the icons of Bristol ever since it was opened in 1864. So have you guess what our story is about today? Of course, it's about the Great Clifton Suspension Bridge. Just to get us into the mood, I'm playing the harp concerto in A minor. The Clifton Suspension Bridge on the Avon Gorge and the River Avon links Clifton in Bristol to Lee Woods in North Somerset. Since opening in 1864, it has been a toll bridge, the income from which provides funds for its maintenance. Although the tolls have now become cash-free for the first time in its 156-year history because of the coronavirus pandemic. It has also been the venue for significant cultural and historical events, such as the first modern bungee jump in 1979 and the last ever Concorde flight in 2003, as well as the handover of the Olympic torch relay in 2012. Until the 1930s, daredevil pilots occasionally flew beneath the bridge in biplanes. After this time, with the creation of faster planes, the practice became too dangerous. It is a Grade 1 listed building and forms part of the B3129 road. It was designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, a young and innovative engineer at the time. It was his first project at the age of 23 and came about because of a competition. In 1753, Bristolian merchant William Vick had left a bequest in his will of £1,000, which is equivalent today to 150000 His instructions were that when the interest had accumulated to £10,000 or the equivalent of £1,530,000, it should be used for the purpose of building a stone bridge between Clifton Down, which was in Gloucestershire, outside the city of Bristol, until the 1830s, and Lee Woods in Somerset. Although there was very little development in the area before the late 18th century, as Bristol became more prosperous though, Clifton became very fashionable and more wealthy merchants moved to the area. 
1793, William Bridges published plans for a stone arch with appuments containing factories which would pay for the upkeep of the bridge. The French Revolutionary Wars broke out soon after the design was published, affecting trade and commerce, so the plans were shelved. In 1811, Sarah Guppy patented a design for a suspension bridge across the gorge, but this was never realised and was not submitted to the later competition. By 1829, Vic's bequest had reached £8,000, but it was estimated that a stone bridge would cost over ten times that. A competition was held to find a design for the bridge, with a prize of a hundred guineas. Entries were received from 22 designers, including Samuel Brown, James Meadows Rendor, William Tierney Clark and William Hazeldine. Several were for stone bridges and had estimated costs of between 30000 and 93000 Brunel himself submitted four entries. The judging committee rejected 17 of the 22 plans submitted on the grounds of appearance or cost. They then called in Scottish civil engineer Thomas Telford to make a final selection from the five remaining entries. Telford rejected all the remaining designs, arguing that 577 feet was the maximum possible span. Telford was then asked to produce a design himself, which he did, proposing a 110-foot-wide suspension bridge supported on tall Gothic towers, costing 52000 This week I offer you the word flabbergas, which is a fluffed line, a stumbled word or a mistimed joke, also called a major muckfluffer. And that's a Victorian theatrical term. And now back to the history of the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Brunel produced a new proposal costing 10,000 less than Telford's design and gained support for it in the local press. In 1831, a second competition was held with new judges examining the engineering qualities of all the proposals. The winner was declared to be a design by Smith and Hawkes of the Eagle Foundry in Birmingham. Brunel had a personal meeting with the judges and persuaded them to change the decision. The committee then declared Brunel the winner and he was awarded a contract as project engineer. To help workmen cross the gorge while the bridge was under construction, Brunel designed the Suspended Traveller, a basket car which hung from an iron bar 305 metres long and 3.8 centimetres thick. The bar was created in sections and fire-welded together in Lee Woods. On Wednesday the 24th of August, 1836, workmen were just completing the laborious process of hauling it across the gorge when a rope attached to it broke. About half past ten Wednesday morning, the bar was brought home and the men gave three hearty cheers. In five minutes more, all would have been safe and secure. But at the very moment of triumph, the ten-inch rope unfortunately broke at the ring where it was attached to the chain, and the bar being loosened sprang up with great force and immediately descended with a tremendous, awful rush, a fall of 300 feet into the river below. 
Fortunately, only one man was hurt, and he, we believe, not dangerously. The bar then presented an extraordinary spectacle, lying across the channel with one end deep in the mud and the other lost in the wood at the summit of the rock. By the following morning, difficult as it must have been, the bar was raised and restored to its proper place. The toughness and pliability of the iron have therefore been fully proved. On Saturday the 27th of August, at 8am, the Marquis of Northampton laid the foundation stone for the Lee Woods abutment. As part of this ceremony, Brunel was due to make the first crossing of the gorge. But because of the bar falling previously, it was deemed too dangerous for him to go. Later that day, two men rode the basket out of the river, where it got stuck on a bend in the bar. To make matters worse, the rope attached to the basket caught on the mast of a steamship. The men were only saved because a bystander cut them free. The bar was taken down and replaced. Brunel ordered a new, thicker bar, 50 millimetres or 2 inches in diameter, to be made, and within four weeks it was to be installed on site. By the 27th of September, Brunel made the first successful crossing, accompanied by the son of Captain Christopher Claxton, Secretary of the Bridge Committee. Brunel described the bridge as, My first child, my darling. And this amazing bridge, which took 33 years to complete, marked the beginning of a great engineering career. The real tragedy, though, was that Brunel himself did not live to see his bridge open. Sir Abraham Elton called it the ornament of Bristol and the wonder of the age, back in 1831. The bridge is a distinctive landmark, used as a symbol of Bristol on postcards, promotional material and informational websites. It has been used as a backdrop to several films, television advertising and programmes. In her radio debut on the 3rd of February 1933, which also happened to be her 91st birthday, Mary Griffith told her a tale of how she became the first person to cross this great bridge at its opening on the 9th of December 1864. Her father, Isaac William Axford, an officer in the Gloucestershire Hussars at the time, was the first to cross the bridge on horseback as part of the civic and military procession following the opening of the bridge. Now, Mary was born in Hannam and lived nearby until her death in 1936. She recalled how, when the gates to the bridge were thrown open to the public, she raced from the Clifton side to Lee Woodside, beating a young man by a few yards, who was also after the honour of being the first. The gates were opened at six o'clock in the morning, and I was there with my mother and my uncle. As the gates were unfastened, my uncle pushed me forward and said, Run, Mary! And I ran for all I was worth! There was a young man on the other side of the bridge, and he too was running fast to reach the Clifton side of the bridge. But I beat him by about a foot. I was 21 years of age at the time, and I could run very well. She also went on to say that she remembered soldiers who were returning from the Crimean War and were marching to the Hawfield barracks, cheering her on and clapping. 
The Clifton Suspension Bridge is well known as being a suicide bridge and is fitted with plaques that advertise the telephone number of the Samaritans. Between 1974 and 1993, 127 people fell to their deaths from the bridge. In 1998, barriers were installed on the bridge to prevent people jumping. Sarah Ann Henley, on the 8th of May, 1885, felt that there was no other way out from the pit of her despair she found herself in. She was a barmaid at the Rising Sun in Easton, who was engaged to be married to a GWR porter. But he did the callous and cowardly thing of breaking off their engagement by letter. She walked to the bridge, and at about 12.30pm, she became the 16th person to leap from the bridge. Several people saw her fall the 245 feet from the bridge into the mud on the Clifton side of the river near the water, which was receding and was at about half tide. Amazingly, her massive Victorian dress became a sort of parachute. The Bristol Magpie, dated May 16th, 1885, said, There being a slight breeze blowing on Friday, the young woman's clothes were inflated, and her descent was thereby considerably checked, and the wind also prevented her falling straight into the water, and she was carried into the mud on Gloucestershire side. John Williams and George Drew were nearby and helped drag her out of the mud to the safety of the bank and then the refreshment room at the Avonmouth Railway Booking Office. What surprised them was that she was not only alive but conscious and speaking. She told them her name and that she was 22 and lived at 30 Twinnell Road, St Phillips. Dr Griffith from Clifton was passing and he advised that Sarah should be taken to the Bristol Royal Infirmary immediately. Detective Robertson, who had arrived at the scene, hailed a cab but the driver refused to take her as she would have made his cab dirty. He was offered money. They said that they would wrap her in sheets. They even told him that she was in a serious condition and could die. But he still refused, saying, I don't care, let her die. In the end, someone had to be sent to the Clifton Police Station to get a stretcher so that Sarah could be taken to the hospital. This took over an hour to do. Her condition was critical by this point. She got her brother to visit her ex-boyfriend and asked him to visit her. Her father was furious with the boy and went to the railway station where he worked and beat him to a pulp. Fellow workmates never intervened, nor did the police, probably thinking he deserved a good kicking. Sarah spent nearly a month in hospital and survived her ordeal. A poem was written about the incident by William Hessel, Once in Victoria's golden age, when crinolines were all the rage, a dame in fashionable attire would change her life for one up higher. So up to Clifton Bridge she went and made a parachute descent. But though t'was not the lady's wish, a boatman hooked her like a fish, and thus a slave to fashion's laws was snatched from out of death's hungry jaws. This story's true, I'd have you know, and thus it only goes to show.
The rather stubborn cab driver mentioned earlier, Mr W Mills, later wrote a letter to the Western Daily Press, stating that it was within his rights to refuse, and he was following the bylaws by which he was governed by. Mr Mills had just had his cab refurbished, taking two weeks, and as it was his only means of income, he couldn't afford to lose any more pay by taking Sarah and having his cab ruined. He quite literally couldn't pay to clean up his cab again. He said he had asked the gathering crowd at the time if they would pay, but no one accepted. Sarah became a local sensation, and offers of marriage flowed in. Sarah did get married, 15 years later, to Edward Lane, and lived a long and fruitful life. She died at 85 in 1948, and was buried Sarah Ann at Avonview Cemetery. Many people have fallen to their death from the bridge, accidentally or not. But what about attempted murder? Well, in September 1896, Charles Albert Brown, aged 36, threw his two children, Ruby and Elsie, over the edge to a 300-foot drop. Charles was a grocer at Langmore Street, Balsall Heath, Birmingham, and business was not going too well. He had worked 18 hours a day to make ends meet, but it wasn't enough. Mrs Brown was advised by doctors to put her husband in an asylum for his own good, but she refused, saying he was a good father and never drank. One morning, he just snapped, and he took the girls on an errand with him. Well, in fact, he took them to Bristol. They spent all day with him, and between 2 and 3 a.m. went to the bridge and he lifted three-year-old Elsie and 12-year-old Ruby over the edge and into the water. James Hazel, a boatman, was coming up the river, Avon, and just beneath the bridge he found a child in the water. Whilst pulling her into his boat, he heard another child crying out from the bridge above, No, don't, Daddy, don't, Daddy! And then a splash as the child hit the water. The boatman rescued the second child, and the first thing she said was, Where's Elsie? He then took them to the hospital. If he hadn't fished them out as fast as he had, the two girls would surely have died. Amazingly, they both survived. It is believed that Charles intended to jump over after he'd thrown them in, but suddenly changed his mind. He was arrested shortly after the cruel act. A policeman found Charles on the bridge, acting suspiciously, so he took him to Clifton Police Station, where the constable had only just found out about the two girls. Elsie only had a slight injury to her leg, but poor Ruby had severe spinal injuries and was in tremendous pain. Luckily, they both recovered. At the Bristol Assizes on the 1st of December, 1896, Charles Brown was indicted for attempted murder of his two girls. His defence said that Charles should be sent to an asylum as he was very likely to become a dangerous lunatic. The jury found him guilty and believed that he was indeed insane at the time of the offence. For those who knew the currents and where to look, there was the job of finding the bodies of suicides. One was asked to retrieve a very noble woman, maybe even royalty, living in the Bristol area, that committed suicide from the bridge. It was believed that... The search had taken place for around a week before they asked for advice. Then they were able to recover the body 
within a few hours of searching. If they were clever, the bodies were discovered on the Avon side of the river, as they paid two crowns instead of the Somerset side that only paid one. This week's book is The Light Between Oceans by M. L. Stedman. It is a truly touching read, centred on Tom Sherbourne, who returns from the war in 1926 to Australia to take a job as a lighthouse keeper on Janus Rock. A supply boat comes once a season, and shore leaves are granted every other year at best. Tom brings a young, bold and loving wife. Years later, after two miscarriages and one stillbirth, the grieving Isabel hears a baby's cry in the wind. A boat has washed up his chore, carrying a dead man and a living baby. Basically, this is a highly emotional book about when good people make bad decisions. As you can imagine, with something so prominent as the Clifton Suspension Bridge, you'll get some daredevils. And in the earlier days of aviation, it definitely brought in the pilots. In 1927, duty pilot officer F.G. Wyman flew a Bristol fighter, which is a two-seater biplane, under the suspension bridge, following a bet of five shillings that he wouldn't do it. After accepting the bet, he drove to the bridge and only then realised that the gorge is quite bendy, making a straight approach impossible. The next day he flew, getting as low as 20 feet above the river at almost stalling speed. Then he passed under the bridge, then accelerated and climbed back up to return to the aerodrome and his five shillings, as well as a lot of beer in the mess. The following day he was reprimanded for a stupid and insanely reckless feat. Now on the 3rd of February 1957, Flying Officer Crossley aged 28, who had been based in Filton, tried to fly under the bridge in a de Havilland vampire jet. He was attempting to do a victory roll under the bridge, even though flying there was banned. A victory roll is where the plane spins as it is flying. Mr A. H. Fenn, a proprietor of a kiosk on the bridge, said, There was a strong wind, and as the aircraft continued up the gorge, it appeared to roll or, or bank to the left, I imagine a strong crosswind must have caught him as he was banking. After going under the bridge, it all went wrong for him and he crashed into the leeward side of the gorge, killing himself instantly. His was the last flight by anyone under the bridge. At the inquest at Flaxborton near Bristol, Corporal Robert Charles Troll of the Royal Auxiliary Air Force, stationed with 501 Squadron at Filton, said that at 10.30am on Sunday... He saw Crossley sitting in a vampire starting the engines. He then climbed out, dashed round to the starboard side, disconnected the starting appliance and then climbed back into the aircraft as if he was in a hurry. I made signs to prevent him from taking off because the nose wheel chock was behind the wheel and danger might ensue. He ignored me completely. And the last plane story I have to tell you is following the announcement by Air France and British Airways to retire Concorde, one was flown over the bridge to a final resting home in Filton, 
where she now forms part of the Aerospace Bristol Museum. I'm not sure you're aware of this, but Bristol is the birthplace of bungee jumping. David Kirk is the man who invented the sport, enjoyed by thousands across the world, and he has not made a penny from it. As a member of the Oxford University's Dangerous Sports Club, David and other members were inspired by pictures taken of South Pacific tribesmen leaping off 80-foot wooden platforms, secured only by vines tied around their ankles. The Dangerous Sports Club was set up as an antidote to the bleak landscape of 1970s Britain, and their quest was to have as much fun as possible. On April 1st, 1979, the then 33-year-old David peered over the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Wearing the club's trademark top hat and tails with a bottle of champagne in hand and a mask over his face so his mother wouldn't recognise him in the papers, he jumped. Mr Kirk was connected by elasticated cords tied to Brunel's famous bridge. Bungee jumping? Well, Kirk originally spelled the word with a Y, not two E's, had been invented. Three other club members peered over the edge of the bridge, noticing David Kirk had bounced back and was safe. They too leapt over. The jumpers were arrested after the stunt and then released on the promise they would never do it again. The dangerous sports club later tried bungee jumping elsewhere in the world, in the USA and in Japan. On the jump's 21st anniversary, David managed to repeat the feat, much to the chagrin of the authorities and the trustees of Clifton Suspension Bridge, who stated it does not condone or endorse bungee jumping from the bridge. For Mr Kirk, who is proud of the global love for bungee jumping, his abiding memory of that first leap is of one of unabashed joy. He says the main thing going through his mind was whoopee! I think bungee jumping is great because it's positive metaphor literally bouncing back. Inspired by their work, Kiwi A.J. Hackett developed the sport from 1988 and the New Zealand became the unofficial home of bungee jumping. Forty years after its invention, few realise that the sport's origins are from a Victorian bridge in the West Country. The suspension bridge isn't Brunel's only bridge in Bristol. If you go to the man-made island at Howard's Lock in the Cumberland Basin in the centre of Bristol, you'll find the Swivel Bridge, which is Brunel's first large wrought iron opening bridge and is far older than the suspension bridge and also Bristol's only abandoned Brunel structure. Here's Jeff Wallace, the supervisor of the bridge, to tell you more about it. Um, Jeff Wallace, I'm the uh, leader of the project here on the Brunel Swivel Bridge, which we call Brunel's Other Bridge. Um, The reason we call it that is because everyone knows about the Clifton Suspension Bridge, which of course is quite wonderful and was designed by Brunel, uh, but it wasn't constructed uh, completely to his design. It was actually uh, built after his death uh, and the engineering was uh, changed by uh, two other eminent engineers, Hawkshaw and Barlow. Uh, The bridge we're standing on here, though, the Brunel Swivel Bridge, down at the Junction Lock in uh, uh, Cumberland Basin, was designed by Brunel, and it was built during his lifetime. It was completed in 1849. So, in fact, it's older than the suspension bridge. Uh, And we 
sort of uh, considered this as one of a string of pearls here in Bristol. Uh, the suspension bridge, of course, everyone knows about. Then the next, as you move upriver in towards the uh, the harbour, is his uh, suspension br- uh, swivel bridge, Brunel Swivel Bridge. Uh, if you continue then uh, to the other end of uh, Cumberland Basin, you'll come across the wonderful uh, Underfall Yard. Now, uh, Brunel was involved in um, creating the water system through the city to control silt and, uh, and uh, flooding. And uh, the site of the Underfall, uh, as it's so-called, uh, is still operational. The Underfall is still working. And on the top of it is a late Victorian maintenance yard, uh, which you need to come and visit. It's absolutely a fantastic place. Uh, so that's our third uh, pearl in the string. And then, of course, as we move further into the city, uh, we come to the magnificent SS Great Britain, which was, uh, of course, designed by Brunel, a very innovative ship. Uh, and actually, it was constructed in the same dockyard, that is the Great Western uh, Dock, uh, where she is now, the same place that the swivel bridge that we're standing on now uh, was built uh, just a few years later, about six years later. So there's a fantastic history here of uh, Brunel's uh, creations, uh, and I have to say I think that the city doesn't make the best of this wonderful string of pearls. We should, for example, be marketing these four sites together. We should have proper uh, communications between them, perhaps a little more collaboration than we do. Uh, and with the use of the dock increasing, or at least hopefully it will do next year when we got through COVID, uh, we could have improved communications down at this end, the west end of the Cumberland Basin, uh, perhaps uh, a ferry uh, uh, to and, and um, properly marked walking routes, for example, to bring people further to the west end here of the harbour and then perhaps onwards up through uh, Clifton and Hotwells to the uh, Clifton Suspension Bridge. Another volunteer at Brunel's other bridge, or Bob for short, was Jeff and he was telling me why he was helping with the restoration. So I like to come down here to help out with restoring this old bridge because I'm really interested in history of engineering and I think this has got a significant uh, impact on the history of, of Bristol. This was really the first occasion somebody tried to use this construction. This bridge is of, of historic importance. Apologies there for the quality of the recordings, but it was a very windy day. Bristol's other bridge is being restored by volunteers and the total estimated cost to get it back into commission is 695000 Now, you can help save this historical structure if you just go to their website at www.brunelsotherbridge.org.uk to find out more.
And now it's time for some back in the day facts. And this one tickled my funny bone. On the 5th of September in 1698, the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, imposed a tax on beards to encourage the westernisation of fashion in his country. Also on the 5th in 1946, Zanzibar-born British pop singer Freddie Mercury was born. And in 1959 on the 5th, the UK's first trunk call from a public call box was made in Bristol by the Deputy Lord Mayor. On the 8th of September, 1838, English lighthouse keeper's daughter, Grace Darling, with her father, rescued the nine survivors of the wrecked SS Forfarshire off the coast of Northumberland. Latest news hot off the press. Apparently, boffins have discovered that every Scooby-Doo episode would literally be two minutes long if the gang just went to the mask store and asked a few questions. I hope you enjoyed today's show and a huge thank you to Marcus Keppel-Palmer and Sandra Hobson from Bradley Stoke Radio for their voicings as well as Tony Allen. I think you can agree they brought the story to life. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>